Becoming a member at Navy Federal Credit Union could help you to earn more and save more. Their certificate options could earn you more than standard savings accounts with competitive rates. Not all financial institutions offer you as many choices for savings options as Navy Federal does. For example, you can start your savings journey with a low minimum deposit, add money at any time, and watch your savings grow. Thanks to flexible terms, you can use Navy Federal savings options for all kinds of goals, short or long term. Navy Federal also offers equity loan options to help you get the funds you need to consolidate high-interest debt, work on home improvements, or cover any of life's big expenses. To learn more, visit NavyFederal.org. At Navy Federal, their members are the mission. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, equal housing lender, membership required. Terms and conditions apply, loan subject to approval. Here at How to Money, we're always encouraging listeners to think about some of the different ways they can earn some money on the side to reach their financial goals. And guess what? While you're away, your home could also earn extra income. Your empty space could be an Airbnb while you're traveling, because that's all you need to become an Airbnb host. Yeah, hosting is a lot easier than you might think, and you don't need to Airbnb a whole house. You can just host your extra spare room. So consider becoming an Airbnb host, because your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Matt here for Health Aid Kombucha. This bubbly probiotic tea blended with real fruit juice is deliciously thirst-quenching and great for your gut health. Health Aid Kombucha comes in many flavors like Pink Lady Apple, Passion Fruit Tangerine, and Ginger Lemon, which is one of my favorites since it has that extra ginger kick. I'm a big fan, though the kids prefer the the mango lemonade. It's organic, it's non-GMO, and a great alternative to sodas and other sugary drinks. Just look for the brown bottle with an anchor in your local stores. Give it a try today. Make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. Welcome to How to Money. I'm Joel. And I am Matt. And today we're talking help for high earners with Rachel Camp. So I think very few folks feel rich, right? Like even if they're doing really well for themselves, and oftentimes I think that has the most to do with the uh, hedonic treadmill. Like we think we need a new car or a vacation, a new house. We think all those things are going to make us happy, but we quickly return to our baseline happiness. And at the end of the day, folks definitely don't feel rich. But guess what? I think a lot of folks, especially couples who are able to share the load of some of those big expenses like housing, I think those folks would be surprised to find themselves in the in the top 10% or very near there of earners in the U.S. Uh, and when you make a lot of money, or at least if you hope to, it takes a different approach to how you should handle your finances. That's why we're excited to be joined by Rachel Camp. She's the owner of Camp Wealth, who is on a mission to help her clients build and not only build, but also preserve their wealth. Uh, but it's also not just the the six-figure earners who are pursuing financial independence. She believes that anyone can actually do that. We're going to talk about that and more today. Rachel, thanks so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. Huge fan of the podcast. I didn't get to tell you guys that before. But I've been listening for a while, so I'm happy to be here. All right. Well, thanks, Rachel. Yeah, no, we're Very glad kind. to have you. I uh, found you on Twitter. You are one of those rare good things that comes from the devastating <laughs> platform that is now called X. Yeah. Uh, so so gl- glad that happened. Uh, our first question to every uh, guest who comes on the show is, what's your craft beer equivalent? Because while Matt and I spend ridiculous amounts on great craft beer, top-notch stuff, we are also saving and investing wisely for the future. What's that for you? I know you're saving and investing, but what do you like to spend a ridiculous amount of money on here and now? Oh, yeah. I mean, I could go on and on about this, but I will try to keep it concise. Actually, my financial life is designed in a way where I keep fixed expenses really, really low. So transportation, housing, really low, and I get to splurge everywhere else that I want to. So, you know, the big ones for the for daily expenses, I do love a latte. I'm very classic millennial in that sense. <laughs> <laughs> but outside of that, you know, anything experiences. So like I just bought an insane amount, or I'm sorry, I spent an insane amount on snowboarding boots, anything fitness related. So everything like that, I when I go to spend the money, I just know that <laughs> there are some people who think that that is insane, but I've intentionally designed my life so I can really splurge in those areas when I want to. I love that. Is the latte like a, a daily habit or is this like a couple times <laughs> a week? I'm, I'm curious. And, it's and a couple- obviously, obviously you didn't read David Bach's book, The Latte Factor, right? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> avoided that one. Um, <laughs> no, it's it's probably three, four times a week. So actually, I, I look at it as an investment. That's how I justify it. Oh, because okay. I work really well from coffee shops. There's something about being there that I can just tap into deep work really easily. And so, of course, I have to get myself a latte. I love a, a good matcha latte. Um, and so it works really well for me and I really, I truly do enjoy the latte. So it's worth the splurge for me. Very cool. You know, it's funny, uh, Joel and I, we joke about a, a mutual friend of ours who is always at the coffee shop that is, is right here near our, our office. He's like the mayor of that coffee shop. <laughs> and, but I was thinking about it the other day and I thought, you know what? If he is kind of weighing the pros and cons between showing up there whenever he wants, being in a great spot where he can see some friends, expand his network, and all he's got to do is pay rent by buying a latte, by buying a coffee, yeah. that compared to a co working space, it is so much more affordable yeah. for him mm-hmm. to do that as opposed to, you know, some stuffy co working kind yeah. of space, which obviously. They're making all those cool, and they also include coffee, but it's not the same as going to the place that's got the best pastries in town. Makes me think of J.K. Rowling, who, uh, it was like cheaper instead of paying for the heat at her house, she went to the coffee shop. Matt, you and I got to go like, see the coffee shop where Harry Potter was birthed. Like pink elephant or something? Red elephant, something like that. Something like that, something elephant related. But yeah, I mean, I I get that, Rachel. I think um, I I can understand your reasoning on that. Yeah, actually, I sat down and calculated what I was spending on the lattes to compare it to a co-working space, and I'm coming out Dang. ahead, so... Yes, <laughs> of course you did, yeah, because you Rachel is a CFP, I didn't mention that <laughs> in her intro, but... And actually, am I correct? Do you come from a long line of CFPs? Uh, it's <laughs> um, a short line, yeah. <laughs> a short line, okay, is it, I think it's your dad. My dad's uh, did a CFP, he help? yep propel you into the profession a little bit yeah it's interesting um he honestly growing up he was kind of more on the insurance side it wasn't until maybe like 10 years ago he got his cfp started going more into the financial planning route but he is a a big reason that once i decided to get my degree in finance that i actually went to the wealth management space you know not something like investment banking or which i'm really grateful for because that is soul crushing but (laughs) he is yeah he was a motivator for that but also not a lot of young people know about this industry it's um, a lot of gray hair and so it's, it was a little bit abnormal for me to go into the sector. And so he is a big reason for that. When I went out and, and got my first job, I was the youngest person in the office by far. I believe Super it. Super cool. Yeah, I believe I it. Like and, and Set you apart, though. Yeah. yeah. And it, there, it's, it's fun and interesting to see like a new breed, a new generation of CFPs, of people who care about this, not not from sort of like, uh, and, and they're starting their own firms, their own businesses, yeah. their own small businesses uh, as a way. And it just seems like such a, a healthy approach, <laughs> I think, um, that the new generation is taking versus kind of some of the ways that the industry used to run. I'm curious, with your dad being a CFP and like incredibly knowledgeable about the topic of insurance, mm-hmm. what were money conversations like around your table growing up? If like, w- were, were you guys constantly having money conversations? Was it something he kind of left at the office? How, did, how was that impacting you as you were growing up? Yeah, I think it's, it's probably surprising. We actually really didn't have a lot of technical discussions around money. On the other side, though, my dad was very entrepreneurial and a big believer in having control over your income. So that was really what the discussions were centered around was figure out a way to kind of create your own thing and, you know, don't work really hard just to make somebody else rich. So he was really focused on that. As far as technical, you know, financial things, surprisingly, it's, that was more my mom's side. Actually, one of my flexes is that my grandpa on my mom's side was an early uh he was an og jack bogle and vanguard fan oh heck yeah so, yeah that's cool. so i yeah once i i realized that i thought that was the coolest thing ever but he huge fan of like millionaire next door so a lot of okay. that you know the the power of compounding interest and saving your money and becoming that millionaire next door actually came more from my mom's side mm. and then my dad's was more of the you know entrepreneur and pushing us to kind of start our own businesses but now, hey, now but great influences on both sides yeah, yeah exactly good intersection uh for you mm-hmm. to come from but oh i was gonna say it makes me think of i met a, a a recent friend and he was talking about uh how his mom grew up in omaha and he had a big old flex which was <laughs> <laughs> which is that his mom grew up with Warm the buffett, buffett kids wow. oh that's I was like, a huge flex what <laughs> 
Yeah. And I don't know if this sh- should be surprising or not, but he's like, not surprising I'm into finance as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm like, oh, that's that's like the coolest thing I've learned from somebody in the past like year and a half being in a, in a new town, in a new city. But we're talking about millionaires. Personal finance advice, like it's often targeted to the middle class, but high earners, they, they actually need some help saving on taxes and maximizing their wealth building potential as well. Like, what is it that made you opt to focus on that group in particular? Mm-hmm. And I guess, too, maybe it's good to sort of set the stage. Like, how do you define a high wage earner? Yeah, I mean, we could put a number to it or we could percentage, you know, top 10%. Most of my clients, I'll say, make at least. 500,000 and a decent amount of them are, are approaching seven figures and beyond too. Wow. Yeah, so really, really high earners. And I always say, you know, making money, managing money are two very distinct skill sets. So when I decided to focus on high earners, I really saw that distinction and the need for somebody to kind of come in and say, okay, you've done a great job making the money. Now let's figure out how to optimize and manage the money. And then, you know, I'm sure it's not surprising to you, but there are a lot of people who make a lot of money and don't have a lot to show for it, haven't actually built a lot of wealth yeah, <laughs> with it. Yeah. So, you know, seeing some of those problems and my first job, you know, I was at a huge firm, I was out in Chicago and we worked with ultra, ultra high net worth. So at least 5 million in assets, you know, and we managed over a billion. So I got to see kind of that side of, of people to where they would come in with a tremendous amount of money. A lot of them um, went through exits. So we had some tech entrepreneurs that all of a sudden came into a huge sum of money and were very lost about what to do with it and, and really didn't have a grasp on some basic personal finance concepts. So seeing that at that extreme, I knew that there was a demand for or a need for financial planners there to kind of help them start to manage this money. Um, and then too, you know, selfishly, I've always liked to help people where I'm kind of in a similar situation. So I like to help small business owners as well. So being younger, but also making you know a good salary and went into finance, partially for that reason, um, I noticed that yeah that there wasn't a lot of content or planners centered around helping a younger generation manage their money. So that was a, a big influence on me to to get into that and fill that need. Yeah, it's also hey these are the things you're kind of tackling for yourself. So why not then pass the knowledge and help other people mm-hmm. with the stuff you're already kind of working through on your own? Okay, question: What are High earners typically, what are their biggest needs when they come to you for advice? It, like, I'm sure it runs across the board. And you mentioned how, like, even people who have high salaries, sometimes they're still spending way too much. Right? They're not saving enough. They they don't have a high enough savings rate. Are you even broaching the topic of like frugality with people who earn 800k <laughs> a year? Like, do you have to have those kinds of conversations? You you do. Um, you know, it's it's really wow. interesting. One of the first things mm-hmm. I look at is cash flow. It's one of the very first meetings I have. So where is our money going? When I ask the question to people where's your money going? I never get a response. Nobody has any idea. And there, there's a lot of high earners too that like think they're doing fairly well. You know, they're putting away say 100K into savings. But if we break that out as a percentage of their income, you know, it's actually really low, it could be like 10%. So taking that and translating it to a percentage for them is really helpful and, and really eye-opening. So that's one of the things um, that we look at. Cash flow is really important. And if there is an issue, if, if they're overspending, then of course we have to start talking about that. I'm a huge fan of reverse budgeting, especially for high earners. As the money comes in, let's put it to work right away and investing, um, you know, paying the bills and then spending uh, what's left over. Now, that is a process. We have to leg into that. We can't just um, go from saving 10% to 30%. So that's something that we will work through. Uh, after that, honestly, taxes by far the biggest thing that people come to me for, um, whether they're a high earner or a small business owner, usually it's, I get a lot of people coming in after tax time, after they've paid their tax bill and just trying to figure out how they can spend um, less in taxes. And it, it's interesting too, and you mentioned this, that so much of the personal finance content is geared to kind of middle class. And as a result, I see a lot of really high earners coming in and they're putting a lot of money into like Roth accounts rather than pre-tax mm. accounts. So that's a mistake that I usually see um, for high earners. And so it's about kind of shifting that and then finding some other avenues like charitable giving there's a way to do that in a tax efficient manner um and and really having a big checklist and kind of going through each item to see 
can we save on taxes here? Can we optimize taxes anywhere? Yeah, I got to think that that takes a big old, I mean, I don't like paying taxes. I can't imagine somebody (laughs) who's like raking in some serious money and just what that feels like. The psychological component of that is, yeah. Oh my gosh, it's it's painful. And of course, this time of year, everyone, as everyone's getting their documents together, I'm sure it's on a lot lot more folks' minds. I'm curious, (laughs) I kind of laughed to myself when you said that it sounds like what you're doing is putting these millionaires on budgets. (laughs) Do you get much pushback uh, when it comes to that? Because on like... I was about to say mint, but you know, mint, they're riding off into the sunset. Yeah. But when it comes to YNAB. Like, yeah, <laughs> YNAB or Copilot, when it comes to personal budgets, it seems so quaint. And I could I feel like I could see a lot of high earners really pushing back on that, or are they able to embrace that because they're used to seeing balance sheets and their own profit and loss statements from their business? No, I, I think they embrace it. I've, I've rarely had somebody say, I, I can't do that. I can't make those changes because that's what they're coming to me for. You know, they know that there's something in there that isn't optimized. They're worried that they're not building wealth in the best way or building enough wealth. So if they come to me and that is something I notice that we're spending a bit too much, they're very receptive of it. And, you know, I'm very careful with how I approach it too. It's it's not a matter of you're spending, you know, 70% of your income. we got to cut that in half. It's more of let's walk through it, see where the money is going and kind of figure out a plan to how we can shift it more to savings. So, and and there's several different ways to do it. Like I said, I love to show them on a percentage basis where their money is going. They hate to see the percentage that is going to taxes. (laughs) Um, But when you approach it or bring it up in a way especially with taxes in a tax efficient manner. Because even if we're talking about just a taxable brokerage account, there's a lot of tax, excuse me, there's a lot of tax advantages within a taxable brokerage account. So if I frame it in that way, in a way that we're building wealth and we're gonna be saving on taxes this way, they are much more receptive to it. And then many of them too have a goal of generational wealth. So it does really bother them if they're not putting enough money away to where the next generation can't carry on this wealth. So it's just about framing it the correct way, making sure that it aligns with their goals. Once I figure out their goals, it's very easy to say, if we want to hit these goals, this is how we kind of have to shift the money. So it's all about lining it up with what they first tell you that they want. Yeah, it's probably also good to have a mindset shift on just kind of how we think about taxes too. I think oftentimes it's like, uh, it's, it's taxes are the enemy, and in some ways, more paying more taxes means they are Joel. They're the, they're the enemy. <laughs> paying more taxes means hey, you're crushing it, right? And so it's yeah. like uh, nobody in their right mind would would take a two hundred thousand dollar pay cut yeah. in order to pay less taxes. Um, and so I guess we have to kind of have that shift too, and just realize, okay, cool, more taxes might mean more success, might mean higher investment returns, yeah. uh, and 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 just a higher paycheck too. So I know that's one thought. But okay, talk to me too about. Investment accounts. Yeah, you, you mentioned the Roth, and that is something that Matt and I talk about regularly. For middle class folks, the Roth IRA is you know a, a godsend. One. It's incredible. Yeah. Like yeah. everybody, you know, <laughs> making average money should be contributing and hopefully maxing out the Roth IRA, or let's say the Roth four hundred one k. But if you if you're making five hundred fifty k, well, the Roth four hundred one k probably doesn't make nearly as much sense as the traditional because you're able to take a big tax break now. And uh, what, yeah, what other accounts, how else would you steer high income earners into specific account types? Yeah, I don't want to say that I steer them away from Roth because that's not the case at all. I mean, a high earner to tell them that we can put money into an account and we get tax free growth, that is, you know, a huge benefit, something that all high earners should know about. Um, But it's really, it's, Zooming out a bit and looking at lifetime tax rate, not the year tax rate. Everybody's obsessed with how can I bring down taxes this year? What we should do is zoom all the way out and say, how can we pay the least amount, you know, legally, of course, in taxes over our lifetime? Mm-hmm. And that's where we, and of course we can't, the variables that we don't know, like what's your future income, what are future tax rates, makes this a bit complex. But there are some things that we do know. So what is your tax bracket today? And then maybe do we have an estimated guess of how that's going to change? So say somebody's making 500K, but they're very young and anticipate making over a million someday. Maybe a Roth makes sense for them. It's, it's hard to say 
um, who should go into what account until we look at that person's you know individual life. I, I will say I'm a big fan of for high earners of this combination of doing pre-tax 401ks and then a backdoor Roth. So for many of them, they can't directly contribute to the Roth. There is a way to get around it as long as you don't have money in any IRA accounts. So that combination I love because those people can't make a deductible IRA contribution anyway. So we might as well fill that up with the backdoor Roth. So I love that that combination. We don't completely exclude the Roth, but we bring it in when it makes sense. And that's one of the, the times where I see it makes the most sense is complementing a traditional 401k contribution. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, okay, I kind of want to walk this back a little bit, Rachel. I'm thinking about a second ago, you were talking about generational wealth um, and how that's oftentimes either a goal for a lot of folks or maybe something that they're having a hard time kind of wrapping their heads around. Do you talk with a lot of clients about that? Like more from like a philosophical point of view, like whether or not it makes sense to leave large sums of money to their kids? I'm thinking about, I read a, a history basically on the on the Vanderbilts and how one of them basically said that like inherited wealth is like cocaine to ambition, essentially, <laughs> what, yeah. for, the, for the individual. Because when you know you've got these literally life-supporting sums of money coming your way where you literally don't have to work a day in your life, it changes mm-hmm. your outlook. It changes how it is you approach your school, your education. It, it changes how you approach just everything. And I'm curious if you've had any conversations like that with folks or if it's more about hearing what their goals are and applying the nuts and bolts to get them there. Do you ever kind of dabble in the, uh, is this a good thing for us to be doing in the first place? Yeah, no, I and I love those conversations because one of the things I think is a little bit unique about my approach is that I really do like to bring the behavioral side to it. So we have a goal of generational wealth, you know, making my child a millionaire, things like that. I do, I love to bring in, okay, what are other ways we can do that that's not just passing on money? So obviously a a great one is to pass on good money habits or good work ethic. I think those things should be priority number one over passing on money because your point most wealth is lost by the second generation when we look at generational wealth. And that's because we're passing on money without passing on the habits that the parents uh, had to use to get that money. So if I mm-hmm. had to pick one to pass on to my children, or I had to pick one to inherit, it would definitely be the mindset and the habits. Now, one thing I, I have to look at quite a bit is sometimes people have this goal and they over-prioritize it over themselves even. So they may not have built up enough wealth to someday be work optional quite yet, but they are shoveling money away into their children's accounts rather than their own. So there's the problem of, you know, it, we have to be very careful with how we pass money on to our children and that, to make sure that it doesn't kill their motivation or their drive. Um, the other problem is we have to balance it with how we're saving for ourselves. So I see that problem one of the it's one of the most common problems I see is saving for your children before you save mm. for yourself. Yeah, filling up and those five twenty nines before you've really contributed yeah. your own retirement accounts <laughs> enough. Yep, and it, yeah, we have to to look at it in the context of their children again to really help to say, do you think your children want to be put in a position to where they might? And I frame this very carefully, but do we do we want to put your children in a position to where they might have to help you someday? Because that's a very uncomfortable and awkward position to be in. Or do you think your children? would prefer you to take care of yourself and to be sure that you are self-sufficient uh, in your later years as well. So I have to frame that conversation very carefully, <laughs> but it is extremely important to make sure that we get those priorities set. It's the old airplane oxygen mask scenario, yep. right? <laughs> yeah, put it on yourself first. Uh, talk to me about insurance. You, you mentioned your dad was an insurance guru, Rachel. I'm, it sounds like it passed through the genes. You've got the same. Uh, you've got the same mentality, and a lot of the the same intelligence when it comes to money. Well, what about insurance coverage for high high income earners? Like uh, being underinsured can be insanely costly. Yep. And so, what insurance mistakes are are high earners often making? This is a, another one of the biggest mistakes I see is that they are really underinsured. So. There's, we can look at life, disability, umbrella insurance. Those are you know, the big three when it comes to protecting wealth, protecting your family. So life insurance, a lot of high earners you know, accept what they get through their work and then don't really think about it after that. And you, know, you get a little bit through your work, but usually not enough, especially if you're a high earner. So life insurance, 
it's really important to look at to make sure that if something were to happen to you that your family is taken care of. And I'm a huge fan too of getting life insurance on both spouses, even if one is just you know the homemaker, not bringing in income. Because what people often don't consider is that if something were to happen to that spouse, now we have a lot more expenses that that spouse was taking care of, like homemaking, you know, cleaning and taking care of the children. And all of these expenses are now going to come up if something were to happen to that spouse. So people always think about protecting the spouse that is bringing in the income, but often don't think about the spouse that is taking care of a lot of expenses by being a homemaker. So that is a, a big mistake that I see is that we, if we have one spouse insured, we don't have the other one insured. And the disability insurance, I think this one does not get enough attention. Life insurance gets all the attention mm-hmm. and we can talk about why, big commissions. <laughs> but <laughs> disability, um, you know, you're far more likely to be disabled than you are to die prematurely. So disability is what's going to come in and, and pay you if, if something, if you were to become disabled and, and not work anymore, not be able to work anymore. And the thing with disability you have to be really careful of is the wording of disability. There's uh, own occupation, which is the premium wording and disability just means if you were to become disabled and you could no longer work in the job that you were just in, um, then you'll get paid out. So a lot of doctors need disability insurance because what could happen if you have a lower form of wording with disability insurance is you become disabled and the, the insurance company looks at it and says, well, you could work the front desk, even if it's one fourth of your income or less, and they won't pay out because mm-hmm. it's a, a poor definition of disability. So that is the one I, I really, I don't see enough people uh, having adequate coverage. And then umbrella insurance. This is one that's really important for high earners or anybody with a significant net worth. So umbrella insurance is the insurance that sits on top of auto and home. So auto and home has some coverage limits. And if something were to happen, if you were to get sued or your child were to get in trouble or your dog were to run out and bite somebody, um, your coverage with auto and home might not be enough to cover, you know, beyond what somebody might sue you for. And then they can start going for your assets. Umbrella is what sits on top of that and covers the rest of your assets in case you were to get into a really bad situation like that. So I rarely see anybody have umbrella insurance and you can get a decent amount of coverage for for pretty cheap. So I always look at those. Those are the big three for high earners. I love it. Yeah, and it's the rare individual who is over-insured when it comes to some yeah. of these different... Like, I've those yet are the, to see them. <laughs> those, those are the like, financial buddy, nerds comment back on the, yeah. who have like yeah. dialed it in. And it's just like, buddy, why do you even have this? And because they're, yeah. they got things a little too buttoned up. It, it, honestly, that kind of <laughs> makes me think of the fire movement where folks have kind of gotten... Like where the cart's gotten ahead of the horse a little bit. And so we actually, we want to talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, that uh, in addition to maybe entrepreneurship, we'll get to all of that right after this. Joel, I think there are a lot of folks who start small businesses and they're surprised at the amount of behind the scenes, the admin type work that they're not all that thrilled about. Getting your books together with, uh, with some final figures so that you can file your corporate taxes, for instance. That's something we've been in the middle of but it can really gum up the gears, potentially keeping you from doing the work you love. If this is you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, and 1. That's right. Yeah, 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs, key performance indicators, in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. There's a lot of power in the simplification of having all that information in one place. Helps you make better decisions. That's right. And right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash howtomoney. That's netsuite.com slash howtomoney to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash howtomoney. So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned 
And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty, or you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, folks, it's Matt. I've got to tell you about something new I've been trying this year. I've been drinking a little Health Aid kombucha every day, and I feel amazing. It comes in so many delicious flavors, but my favorites so far are Pink Lady Apple and Ginger Lemon. So what exactly is Health Aid kombucha? Well, it is a fermented, bubbly probiotic tea that's good for your gut. It's blended with real fruit juice, and it's super thirst-quenching, a little sweet and a little tangy, and very refreshing. I'm sure you've heard about the importance of gut health and supporting uh, your overall health. It's something I've read up on a good bit over the past year, which is why I've made Health Aid Kombucha a part of my everyday routine. Literally every afternoon, I'll have some. It's super easy, and it's affordable, too. My favorite grocery store, Aldi, they carry it as well. If you want to give it a try and see how great you can feel, look for the brown bottle with an anchor and make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. All right, we're back. We're still talking with Rachel Camp, uh, specifically talking about how high earners can make more progress with their finances. Rachel, I know, I don't know if you would call yourself like, oh, a fire adherent or if you're just kind of like, you know, tangentially related to the movement. I don't know where, where exactly you fit, but you, you've talked about kind of delayed gratification and how important that is. But then you also recently wrote about the downsides of delayed gratification, which is not something the fire moment, movement is prone to really admitting. Um, it seems like this is something that you're wrestling with right now, though, as we speak, like the balances, finding that balance first going to extremes. What are your, what are your thoughts and where do you kind of land right now? Yeah. So I can tell you a little bit of my history with the fire movement. I actually became really obsessed with it I guess you could say with my first job wasn't didn't love the first job and had a little bit of just a, an obsession with money and the way I viewed it as a way that I could have control and freedom over my life and fire movement kind of found me or I found it at that perfect time where I was looking for a way to regain control of my life and to potentially look at you know, shifting out of this job. So I found the fire movement and honestly just fell in love with it. I loved, you know, your money or your life. I love all the the people in the fire movement and I still have, uh, I still appreciate it for what it's done. But I will, I will say I was at one end of the spectrum there and now I've kind of come back to the middle to more of a balance. My issue with the fire movement is what you mentioned, which is I think it delays too much gratification. And it became more and more apparent to me when I started working with clients actually, and seeing that they had some of these goals, like I wanna take a trip with my family, um, or I wanna move to a different city, I don't love the city, and they were delaying all of it in the name of building up their net worth. And being able to view them as an outsider really made me realize that we don't always, we're not always really logical with money. Many of these people could have taken that vacation with no impact to their fire or minimal impact to to their financial freedom number. So that really made me start to reflect on my own life. And then, of course, the book Die With Zero came around and made a huge impact in the financial independence community. I felt like that book was written for us. Like kind of like a, a glass of cold water to the face or yes. slap to the face, you know, just like, hey, what are you guys doing? Yeah, yeah. Bill Perkins came around and said, we're all being a little insane. So <laughs> that was helpful. But he he made some just great points, which is while our, you know, our accounts, our, our investments are growing and compounding, our health and energy are doing the opposite. So there are only things that we can do at certain points of our life. And one of it might be because our health and energy are going to decline, but it also might be because, you know, maybe your your children aren't going to be this young forever and they aren't they're going to grow up so those family vacations that you really want to take it may be the only time you can do it taking your kids to disney world at 22 is a diff- 
very different than taking them at like, you know, eight. Yeah, I don't think they'd be into it at 22 <laughs> quite as much. Um, so yeah, I mean, things like that that you have to think about. And I was, I realized that I was putting off a lot of, uh, you know, vacations like that myself. I've always wanted to backpack Southeast Asia and I've continued to put it off. You know, also building the business, that was a big reason for it too. But finally, you know, reading the book and just doing a lot of reflecting on delayed gratification, I realized I probably am not gonna wanna do this when I'm 60 years old. So let's bring it to, you know, the front, make it a priority now. And if it hurts my savings rate a little bit, I'm fine with that. I have come to terms with a lot of the money that I'm saving and investing right now probably will never be spent by me. So again, we if we look at the extremes. We have this obsession with oversaving and then this obsession with spending everything that we've saved. I, I kind of want to land in the middle again and not have any obsession with money. If I leave behind millions of dollars, I've come to terms that that is fine. You know, might go to charities, might go to my future children, but I don't really care either to die with zero. So I've landed in the middle of kind of both of these extremes. I like it. And I like what you said there too about he says something along the lines of realizing that there is there are only experiences or there's only things that you can do today like there's a limited window of time to take advantage of some of these things and what's crazy is that we do that all the time when it comes to money like it makes me automatically think of a 401k match with an employer and it's like what we would say is that if you don't take advantage of the match you're being an idiot. Like that money is not going to be there tomorrow. So you, you have to pounce on this opportunity. Yeah. That is what we say. But we don't think in those same terms when it comes to life experience. And especially, I mean, you mentioned the kids, like that totally hits home having four kids. And that has allowed my wife and I to feel a little more empowered to like we're in a smaller home and we're like, should we renovate? It seems kind of ridiculous to add add on to the house. But we're like, well, now's the time because our oldest is 10. Yeah. In six years, she's not going to really want to hang out with us anymore. <laughs> so maybe we should go ahead and make this thing happen and I can continue to work. But as far as the kids being at home, like they're, like you said, there's a, there's there's a closing window of time that you have to keep in mind. Yeah, and you know we talked to bring it back to to generational wealth. Another thing that he talks about quite a bit in Die with Zero is how people receive an inheritance at not an opportune point in their life. So usually when once they're much older, 50s, 60s, and really don't need the money at that point. So he makes a really compelling argument that we should be giving or helping our children when they most need the money. So maybe for their a down payment on their first home or for student loans, something like that. I do like the idea of that and also donating during your lifetime too to be able to see your money be put to work. So there's something to giving your money oh, yeah. away during your lifetime that I think can be really satisfying rather than just waiting um, to pass it on, yeah. you know, as you're, an inheritance. You're not maximizing the dollars and cents a la Warren Buffett giving it away, you know, after your death, but you are mm -hmm. maximizing some of the joy that you can receive from seeing those dollars. And, and I think you can have a little bit of both. Again, some balance. The, yeah. the donor advised fund, stocking that up a little bit and then letting that money grow, but also giving it, uh, giving it away at like while you're also while you're alive while you're still living um okay you, you've talked about building your business and uh, uh you know you, you've done a really good job with that owning a business can be beneficial too from a, a tax perspective so can you talk maybe about some of the the low-hanging fruit that self-employed folks can and should be taking uh, you know taking advantage of yeah i mean you know obviously a big one is being able to deduct business expenses that you could not deduct as a w-2 employee so Home office, not something you can deduct as a W-2 employee anymore. Um, even a portion of you know your cell phone, all these things that before there was no deduction for, you now get to deduct as a business expense as long as it is an ordinary and necessary business expense. You know, again, we want to pay the least amount of tax possible, but always make sure that it's legal and above board and that we're tracking everything too. Now, after the business expenses, there's entity selection, which is really important. It's not going to be as important in the beginning, but once you start bringing in a serious amount of revenue, um, you might look at something like electing S-Corp, which can help with deducting self-employment tax. So that's something that was a milestone in my business that I was really excited for when I was able to elect S-Corp and receive tax benefits from that. And then two, my favorite probably is self-employed retirement accounts. So the awesome mm. thing about a self-employed retirement account, uh, when we look at a solo 401k, for example, is 
now you get to contribute as the employee and the employer. So if you're putting on away a lot of money for retirement or we just want to receive you know, a, a big tax deduction, a solo 401k is a great way to do that because you get the employee contribution limits, but now you get to add in the employer contribution limits as well and put away, you know, 2024, I think the total limit is 69,000 as long as you have the revenue for it and the cash flow, of course. But it is a way to, for a lot of these high earners who are also business owners to receive a big tax deduction and put away a ton of money into retirement accounts. That's right. Yeah. And you've talked about how one of the reasons you started your own business, not only does it make sense financially from a tax deduction standpoint, but again, kind of going back to to kind of the FIRE mindset, can you talk about some of the other reasons that you opted to start your own business? Because like one of the things you encourage your listeners and your readers to do is to like think about their ideal day Mm -hmm. and uh, talk about autonomy and being able to kind of run the show as to (laughs) what your life looks like. Yeah. So I mentioned, you know, my first job and the thing that was challenging for me was a big thing that was challenging was my work environment. You know, I was in a room with five other guys, the TV was on, and it was so hard for me to be focused. And then on top of that, a lot of my performance was measured by, you know, hours in a chair. So was she there eight to six rather than output? I, so all of that, I, I really was not the biggest fan of when it comes to translating how I was doing with my work. So I, I always wanted to be able to control my work environment, be able to control the hours uh, that I want to work. You know, and ironically, I work way more now as a business owner, <laughs> but it doesn't feel like quite as much because if I need a break at noon to go work out or go take a walk, I can do that and I can work yes. later. And those things are so, so important to me. I think if there's one theme that I can point out when it comes to me and my view of money is control and control over my schedule and my time. And I I know too, when they look at, when they research human happiness and what contributes to that, a big component of it is, do we have control over our time and our schedule? And so when when it came to starting my own business, that was really important to me, but also in the wealth management industry, there's a lot of, you know, traditional financial advisors. Like I said, it tends to skew at an older age. And I just was excited about kind of a newer and different way of doing things. One of that being a big emphasis on financial planning rather than investment ma- management or insurance sales. So hmm. I realized, you know, I could find a firm that does that, but there weren't that many out there. And the firm that I wanted to build, the idea I had behind it is to create a firm in a way where it's how I would want somebody to help me with my money. And the only way I could really do that is to completely start my own thing, to have control over the process, to have control over how we operate. Uh, I knew the best way to accomplish that was to do it on my own. So that was a big motivator as well. Yeah, I think I think of that as being the, the number one benefit of being self-employed is kind of being able to steer the ship. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the time flexibility is great, uh, The but... And the able the ability to kind of I don't know eat what you kill and make more money yeah. is great too. But I, I think more than anything, it's kind of the uh, creative oversight that you have, and no one else can be like, no, don't do that. I guess Matt can uh, if it really sucks. If my idea is really <laughs> we compromise, <bad>. yeah, <laughs> yeah. There you go. He's like, oh, sorry, dude, that's <laughs> not going to work. Um, but for the most part, like, yeah, it's it's a decision between the two of us, and and nobody else has oversight. And in all my previous jobs, it was somebody saying. Yeah, nah, maybe six months down the road. Or actually, that idea we're not we're not jiving with that. So let's now we're going to put that on the back burner or the never burner. I'm like, <laughs> oh man, that's like it's so nice to be able to kind of have um, a lot more oversight over that. I'm I'm curious to hear too your thoughts on debt, um, Rachel, because we haven't really talked about that. How do you help clients think through whether or not they should prioritize eradicating debt from their life? versus accomplishing other financial goals. So we talked about how, okay, cool, maybe you actually don't need to be, or some of your clients need to be investing a lot more. Others might be overdoing it, mm-hmm. but what about debt payoff? How does that factor in and how do, you, how do you have those discussions? Yeah, so you know, debt is an interesting one in personal finance. There's a lot of really strong opinions on it. And again, I, I 
one of my biggest pet peeves is blanket advice in the personal finance world. So I don't believe in old debt is bad um, or, and I don't also believe in over leveraging yourself. So it's again, a balance and it always depends. But when it comes to debt, I, I never ignore the behavioral side of it. I always ask people what their opinion of debt is and how they feel about having debt if they do have it. And there are a lot of them that just hate it. And it can be really low interest rate debt, which could be three or 4%. And it still bothers them to have that outstanding debt. So I believe every decision, we should start with the numbers and then we should look at the behavioral side. So when it comes to paying down debt, you know, of course I'll run the numbers on this is what it looks like if we pay down the debt versus invest the money. And here's, to the best of our abilities, how we can translate that to a dollar amount or an opportunity cost. And so they'll look at that and then I'll say, but I don't want to ignore the behavioral side of this. And if it really bothers you to have this debt, then, and and we're still funding all of your other financial goals and those are on track, then I'm fine with going ahead and, and paying it down. Now, if we have a discussion where we're struggling with financial goals, we're struggling with not investing enough, and they want to pay down their 2% debt, you know, that is something that I might push a little bit more to the investing side. I certainly don't want to ignore the numbers. And I do believe people hire me to really optimize the numbers for them and optimize building wealth. So I'm not afraid to push people in one direction, but never at the expense of their peace of mind. I never wanted anybody to stay awake at night thinking about something if we can easily fix it. So like everything, it's a balance, but with debt, I consider both components to it and we just go from there. Nice. Okay, so speaking of bespoke financial advice, we're gonna talk about how you recommend for folks to approach hiring a financial advisor. And we'll get to that and more with Rachel Camp right after this. So we've mentioned on the show how we've got a Dominican trip coming up. We're going to celebrate, Joel, you and Emily. You're both turning 40 this year, so we're doing it up right. And a lot of listeners, they might have trips of their own planned. And sometimes those vacations can get expensive. So what better way to offset some of those costs than to have your home earning some money while you're away? Yeah, that's right. Why let it sit empty when it can be earning extra income on your behalf? It's a smart and practical thing to do. So think it through. Maybe you have some extra space in your home. Maybe you have a whole house to host. Or maybe you're going on vacation and your home is just going to be sitting empty. In every case, you can Airbnb it. You already have the space, so it won't be a huge adjustment. Yeah, I mean, the way I see it, if you're not using your space, you've got two options. You can either let it just sit there empty, or you can do some optimizing and make some money off of it. Really, if you think about it, you already have an Airbnb. You just need to start using it. Your home, it might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Hey, folks, it's Matt. I've got to tell you about something new I've been trying this year. I've been drinking a little Health Aid kombucha every day, and I feel amazing. It comes in so many delicious flavors, but my favorites so far are Pink Lady Apple and Ginger Lemon. So what exactly is Health Aid kombucha? Well, it is a fermented, bubbly, probiotic tea that's good for your gut. It's blended with real fruit juice, and it's super thirst-quenching, a little sweet and a little tangy, and very refreshing. I'm sure you've heard about the importance of gut health and supporting uh, your overall health. It's something I've read up on a good bit over the past year, which is why I've made Health Aid Kombucha a part of my everyday routine. Literally every afternoon, I'll have some. It's super easy, and it's affordable, too. My favorite grocery store, Aldi, they carry it as well. If you want to give it a try and see how great you can feel, look for the brown bottle with an anchor and make Health Aid Kombucha your go-to for a healthier, happier you. A big part of being a responsible adult is taking care of the things you care about. For instance, my bike that I ride in to work on. I keep the tires pumped. I keep the chain greased. Gone are the days of leaving your bike out in the rain for weeks at a time, like a kid. (laughs) Simply put, the things futures are built around are the things worth protecting. And making an estate plan now means gaining security of your assets and peace of mind for you and your loved ones. With Trust & Will, you can create and manage a custom estate plan starting at just $199. Go to trustandwill.com slash howtomoney for 10% off plus free document shipping. As the primary breadwinner for our family, I've taken the steps to ensure that Kate and the kids that they're going to be taken care of if something terrible happens to me. Each will or trust is state-specific and customized to your needs. Their simple step-by-step process guides you from start to finish with ease. 
So get the peace of mind you deserve by creating your estate plan with Trust and Will. Secure your assets and protect your loved ones with Trust and Will. Get 10% off plus free shipping of your estate plan documents by visiting trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. That's 10% off and free shipping at trustandwill.com slash howtomoney. All right, we're back. We're still talking with Rachel Camp. And Rachel, I want to talk about financial advisors. Let's get a little meta. We're talking to a financial advisor about financial advisors. Obviously, you're going to say, don't ever hire a financial advisor. They're terrible. No, of course. <laughs> That's our default, right. default answer. Yeah. Well, you don't seem like the kind of person who's going to have this uh, this hard pit- sales pitch for someone who comes to you like, here's why you need to hire me right now. Um, but like, yeah, what do you tell folks who are thinking of hiring you? And what would you tell somebody out there who is thinking, uh, hiring a financial professional might make sense at this point in my financial journey, but I'm just not sure. How do I know if I'm ready? Yeah, you know, in another way that I, I built my business was I never wanted to have to do a hard sell. I only wanted to be able to help people who I really thought I could help. So sometimes I have people come in and they're kind of taking care of the big things. There's not a way that I can see that they can really optimize. And so we'll decide not to work together. So I'm not afraid to, you know, turn people away who I don't think need a financial advisor yet. So you might just look at their numbers, look at their and say, oh, you're doing a great job. Go on your merry way. Keep up. Keep it up. Yeah. Unless there is something, you know, that they really want me to help with, like a behavioral side to it or starting a business. Um, But yeah, I'm not afraid to turn people away and say I or say, I don't think I'm the best person to help you. But maybe there's somebody else that specializes more in in what you're looking for that can help you. I'll be honest, most of the time it's younger people who are kind of just starting out and that I I say I usually recommend a book to them or some other resources, but I don't think they're at the stage quite yet where they need a financial advisor. Is is that because more of their money should be going towards investments than paying for the advice and the help of an advisor? Yeah, I, I don't ever want somebody to pay me and I can't provide more value than what they're paying me. Now, I can't guarantee that, of course, but if I can't see a way that I can provide multiples of what you're paying me, then I don't really want to take you on. That'd be stressful for me. And of course, it wouldn't be helpful for you. So a lot of people, when they're just starting out, it's really hard to provide that value because it's just a matter of you just got to put more money away, get more money invested. Um, and once they've they've reached that or they've reached a certain point where their lives are just a bit more complex, like having a family is a great time to look more seriously into uh, some financial planning. Starting a business is a really important time to do that too. And then too, you know, say somebody is a little bit older and they, they haven't put enough money away and they really need help with figuring out how to carve that out. That's something I, I can help with as well. But for somebody who's on the fence or who's thinking, you know, I, I feel like I've got a good handle on things. I'm just not sure I'm optimized. I hear that all the time. I offer one-time financial plans and I have a lot of peers who offer them too, who are great. And for a lot of people, that makes a lot of sense for them to kind of come in, pay a financial advisor a one-time fee and the plan, you know, barring anything really drastically changing in their life should hold up for a good five to 10 plus years. So that is something if I meet with somebody and I think, you know, ongoing, I don't know if I can provide a lot of value, but I do think we could set up a good financial plan for you and you'd get a lot of value from that. So a lot of people on the fence, I usually recommend they, A, they meet with a financial advisor. Most people have complimentary consultations um, and they shouldn't be salesy. If, if they are salesy, then you can just leave. But after that, you know, you can always start with a financial plan and see if you think it's really helpful to you. Nice. Okay, so you just said that the, these financial plans should be good for like maybe five to 10 years, which is a time frame that just made me think of something. So let's talk about fund selection for your clients. Like we know that you're a fan of, of low cost funds, passive investing, but how do you help clients think through which funds they should own and specifically when their asset allocation should change because you get to a certain point and you're, you're starting to look ahead. I don't know. I would like to hear your answer here, maybe five, maybe 10 years. And as folks are thinking about, I might be needing to access some of those funds. What's your uh, 
Yeah, what's your time frame there? Yeah, so shifting more into the the fixed income side. Again, you know, I hate to say it, as always, it depends. But with a client, we're going to look at first income streams. So I have a lot of clients where they might have some real estate investments or just some income coming in from other sources that even if they were to fully retire, they would continue to get that income. So we look at that first because sometimes you'll have uh, clients, and I used to work with a lot of retirees, and one of the issues I saw is they had pensions coming in and Social Security and all of those income streams were more than covering for their living expenses. And, you know, they were all fixed income streams. So they could actually afford to be a bit more aggressive. And they were a bit too mm-hmm. conservative when you considered yeah. these fixed income streams coming in. So that's something that I look at. But let's say somebody has no other income streams, then really, you know, a good rule of thumb is as you get within 10 years of retirement, we start 15 to 10 years, we start to shift more into fixed income. And once you get to the point where you're really close to retirement, we might be looking at a 70-30 portfolio. And then say you're 10 years into retirement or 15 years into retirement, then we're gonna, we might start to shift to 60-40. Again, very basic rules of thumb. What's more important here is what do you need from the portfolio? So if you have a really big portfolio, but you're not spending that much or you're not requiring that much, then we can actually put a significant amount of money, leave it in the equity side. As long as we've got a good 10 years in the fixed income side um, for your income, you know, we should be good. So I like to start with that is what's the income that we're going to need. But if you're just relying on rules of thumb, 70, 30 is where I see most people enter into retirement with. Hmm. Okay, so you talk to me about just kind of the services financial advisors offer now. It seems like those offerings have changed um, in the past 15 or 20 years. The, the financial advisors almost, in my mind, resemble more like life coaches with a, mm-hmm. a ridiculous amount of knowledge about money and investments and tax planning. And so, but I, I feel like at times uh, in the past, the financial advisor's role was kind of like, I'll handle your investments and you've got to figure out the rest. But that there's just a lot more that the modern financial advisor can offer to a person. Do you think that's true? Oh, yeah. So I think the modern financial advisor kind of came from this need for tax planning first. So one of the biggest complaints that I see is somebody will come to me and say, my CPA doesn't help me at all with tax planning. And by the time I meet with them, you know, all the things that I, I could have done, it's, it's too late to do. Now, most CPAs or accountants are just going to file your taxes unless you ask them for something else. Yeah. And, and if they offer that, that is primarily what they do. So financial planners really stepped in to kind of fill that role, to be there with you throughout the year, to take a proactive approach to tax planning. And when it comes to adding value, that's where I see some of the most value added. And then two, we talk about risk management or insurance. There is a lot of risk that people are exposed to that they're not aware of. So a good financial planner should be looking at your risk management, insurance, but also cash, um, you know, insurance for your business, all these different things that you might not be thinking of. Uh, cash flow planning, of course, figuring out where your money is going and how to optimize it. Retirement planning, that's what financial advisors should have always been doing, but it's shockingly <laughs> more of a thing now. Um, you know, education funding, any financial goals planning, but a good financial planner. And what I think we're doing now is taking just a much more holistic approach to it. You know, when I first started out, what we asked for were your investment statements from a client. Now the document checklist is really long. It's tax returns, it's employee benefits handbooks, it's pay stubs, it's uh, auto and home insurance policies. It is, yeah, it's everything. So really it's, they should be the CFO of your life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's the approach I like to see. Um, And yeah, I, I have so many peers and people who are kind of coming through the next generation that see this shift and it's really fulfilling work too. I had, I was out to dinner with somebody who is in more of a, he's really young, he's younger than me, and he's in a traditional advisor role still. And he was talking about how he wanted to shift more to, you know, what I'm doing and what some other people are doing. And I told him it's, once you've had the experience of being in the role where you're primarily an investment manager and now you shift over to a financial planner and being a CFO of somebody's life, it is 10 times 
more fulfilling because you feel so good about the work you're doing and you can really see all the value you're adding which in yeah. investment management it's a little hard to see the value there so just the number going up you're like helping families achieve the goals they want i get that yeah the, the smile it's, on their face it's the, more of an impact that you're going to be able to have 100%. knowing that you mm -hmm. have that you are involved in all these other areas of life and that you know that they're helping them to to achieve that it goes back to like we were saying at the beginning that hey maybe you need to show up with your budget as well because let's talk about your spending <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but rachel i mean i think it's a an awesome job that you're doing and specifically how you're approaching uh, financial planning with your specific clients but uh yeah where can folks learn more about you and why don't you share a little bit too about your new project uh, the new podcast yeah so just launched uh becoming work optional with my co-host matt garrisick so we have right now episodes coming out every other week we're kind of easy into it we both have businesses that we run as well um but you mentioned twitter i'm most active on twitter camp underscore wealth I do have an Instagram, not very active there, Camp Wealth. <laughs> um, but my newsletter, I love uh, my newsletter as well, which you can sign up uh, on my website, rachelcampwealth.com. Awesome. Rachel, thank you for joining us. We'll put links to all those, uh, all those assets in our show notes. And yeah, I hope to have you on the podcast again one of these days in the future. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, that was Rachel Camp of Camp Wealth fame. Uh, like honestly, I love she's how, like the Taylor Swift of wealth management. <laughs> I love how she's approaching personal finance with her clients. Oh, I think I've got my big takeaway. So I'll, I'll pitch it to you. What's your <laughs> what's your big takeaway? Because okay. I almost almost ran away with it, Joel. You could have if you wanted to. I don't want to be selfish. Ask <laughs> you first. Oh well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> age before B. I don't know. Um, so I think my biggest takeaway, or the, and there was a lot of good stuff in this episode, especially if you are a high income earner. I think there's a lot of like practical takeaway knowledge mm -hmm. but when she mentioned that the latte that she gets however many times a week is an investment i i initially bristle against that because <laughs> just ask my mom like every time she's like my mom is way too many times called an inanimate object or a consumable an investment and i i look at her i give her the stink eye and i'm like what are you talking not about? an investment don't mom. call it an investment mom and so when rachel called the latte an investment i was like yeah, come on. It's not, in, come on. It's not really. I had to mute your mic. I was, Joel's, Joel's like, shut up, mom. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I, was, I was initially bristling, but then when she ran the numbers, and guess what? It is true. Like, uh, the more I think about it, you can consider that, I think, uh, an investment or at least a discounted way a, to work somewhere. Like a substitute. You got to get out of your home office sometimes, yeah. right? And so, um, yeah, I guess I. I need to be less judgmental. I, I realize that. But also, I think, yeah, yeah, I guess you can call that an investment. And I'm not. So that's my big takeaway. I'm growing as a person. That you're uh, that you're just less judgy <laughs> of other people around you and what it is that they call investments and spend, spend money on? Slowly but surely. Okay. I'm getting there. <laughs> All right. My big takeaway is going to be when she was talking. I can't remember what we asked her, but what she said in response was that one of the one of her biggest pet peeves is blanket advice. Mm. And it's so true because there are, I think it's when we're talking about debt, uh, because that's one of those one of those topics that people are always like, oh, you can never have debt, or oh, you have to always use debt to its fullest advantage, to, uh, to, to your fullest advantage if you're trying to optimize. But so much of it comes down to the individual, what's going on in their personal finance situation, what's going to weigh on their mental health, like what is going to speak to them as a person. And this is going to be a plug for folks to send in listener voice memos to for Ask How to Money episodes. Because what I realized when she was saying all of that was that, man, that is exactly what we're able to do when it comes to answering listener yeah. questions on our Monday episodes, because we're able to take into account some of those additional details, some of that nuance that provides well, shoot, had you said this, we probably would have recommended to go ahead and pay it off. But you, you said all these other things. And with that knowledge, with that in mind, we're going to say keep it around in this example. Yeah. Debt, debt is the uh, is the topic. But I, uh, I agree. There's, yeah. a, there's a whole lot of people in the personal uh, finance advice space, and they treat everything like a hammer. It's like it's always debt is dumb, or it's always invest 60% of your income, whatever. I mean, that, that'd be yeah. the fire or, crowd or whatever. Or, or you're an idiot to not consider using yeah. credit cards to take advantage of the of the perks and right. the benefits. Right. And it the depends. Truth, it's it's personalized, and so you yeah. and I, it's I know it's not quite as doesn't make the headlines in the same way. The shades <laughs> of gray sorts of things that we, the kinds of things that we wade into mm. here on this podcast on a regular basis. But that's what we try to do is kind of take all and, and really kind of even when we're spouting something that we think is true, we try to give the caveats every time because yeah. it's not yep. always true for every person at all times. And we do our best to kind of cover that game. And I, Rachel does that too. She well, that's the thing. Many that's of her answers were, were couched like yeah. that, and that's just a sign of someone who's who's smart and has lived some life. 
life and has yeah. encountered a bunch of people who have different sorts of financial situations going on. You know it, man. All right. Our beer was all Citra everything. This was a beer by Other Half. This was another one that you picked up while you were up there in New York. Yeah. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what were your thoughts? Did you dig it? This one was juicy, not over the top, mm-hmm. a nice approachable IPA, but like, but still heavy in that New England juicy realm. So I, good. I loved it. I was just bummed that this is one that we shared as opposed to <laughs> us each having one, uh, but it was bright. It was citrusy. My suitcase couldn't hold anymore, Matt. I know. I get it. Super citrusy, bright, uh, had all this. Like, it wasn't bitter at all. No. If, if you are turned off by the bitter IPA, like those West Coast IPAs, you got to look into some of those New England IPAs, specifically other half. They make some incredible ones. It drinks more like orange juice. As I was going to say, adult than, OJ. Uh, yes. <laughs> So good. Yeah. But, uh, glad you and I did get to enjoy one of these today, buddy. But I think that's going to be it for this episode. We'll make sure to have links up in our show notes at howtomoney.com. But, uh, buddy, that's going to be it. Until next time. Best friends out. Best friends out. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Supercharge your work decks with AI-powered Canva presentations. All you do is start with a prompt. You describe your, your presentation in a few words, and Canva presentations will generate captivating slides that you can then customize in seconds. Canva presentations are designed for every workplace and every department. Whether you work in sales, marketing, HR, ops, and more, Canva presentations can generate any deck you want for work. Sales decks, marketing presentations, onboarding plans, you name it. Any department can save time on any presentation with AI. Generate slides and seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work. Upswell Marketing would like to remind listeners that most people don't belong to two gyms. They don't see two dentists or trust two auto repair shops. So when customers choose your small business over your competitors, they're really choosing you. Upswell Marketing's unique approach includes direct mail, search engine marketing, and social media ads. And in fact, that formula and media mix has fueled more than 10,000 small business success stories. And new customers receive 15% off their first order when they mention that they heard about Upswell on this podcast. For more information, visit upswellmarketing.com.